Welcome to Cyber Inspiration Podcast. My name is Evgeny. I have been around cybersecurity for the last 20 years and I have a lot of experience working with a variety of cybersecurity vendors. My main work is vendor consulting and cybersecurity advisory for companies. As part of my passion in technology and cyber, I've been intrigued to learn how a company starts. I started the podcast to understand the thinking process and what motivated people to start their own company. This podcast is affiliated with Security Architecture Podcast. I have Michael here from Cobalt.io to share his story and his motivation to start his company. Michael, can you please tell me about yourself and the company? Yeah, you got me. It's a pleasure to meet you. So my company startup story is a little bit, I like to refer to it as ass backwards. I was semi-retired after spending 20 years in cybersecurity. And I was introduced to a couple of my co-founders, gentlemen by the name of Boris Hortz and Pagash Agarwal. They wanted to start a cybersecurity services business and they were looking for a founder and CEO to run it. So as investors and as co-founders, which is like the opposite of what people normally do. Normally people like start a business and go out and seek money. This was money seeking a co-founder in this particular case. For me, the whole kind of question that was really raised when I said, hey, I'm going to come out of semi-retirement and go back to work. The big question was like, why? Why am I doing this? Like, why Why am I, like, I could go work for a vendor and make a good chunk of money or whatever. Why am I dragging myself back into the field? And for me, the unsolved problem in cybersecurity has always been small and mid-sized businesses. Nobody spends any attention on them. Everybody goes up and works with enterprise. Anytime you talk to an experienced security professional who's got 10 or 20 years of working experience, they all get sucked up by the big money. And it leaves a vacuum in small and mid-sized business. And that's really the mission that we set out to solve. Interesting. So you guys want to help small, medium business that in Canada here is probably below 500 people? Yeah, so I can draw the line at a thousand employees, but most of our customers are in the 20 to 100 employees range. We have smaller customers, we have larger customers, and we decided to take an initial focus on high tech startups. And one of the reasons behind that was our initial service was a classic security monitoring SOC as a service. And it's much easier to onboard those customers and get them value. They have a driver around doing security monitoring that's SOC 2 and compliance and things like that. And so that's been a core focus for us. But yeah, small and mid-sized businesses are just traditionally really underserved. And we don't just serve customers in Canada. We're now serving customers globally. And it's although we're Vancouver headquartered, we've been able to expand our footprint and our service all over the world. So as I mentioned before we start to record, you're not a very traditional vendor for me because I usually spoke with the people that kind of software or hardware companies. Yep. In your case, your services. So it's a bit of a different journey, but still a journey and still a lot of motivation here. So thank you for doing this. And in many cases with services companies, not going to raise money because they're trying to create services and maybe raise money later on when they have something bigger. So I'm guessing you guys didn't go and raise money. You started to provide services and basically raised organically. Yeah. So we had a little bit of initial founder seed capital. And then from there, we did do a seed round in 2020 after it reached a certain kind of revenue growth to just, you know, continue to accelerate. What we found was in the services business, especially in cybersecurity, it's a trust-based relationship. And so much of our business was coming through trusted referrals. And so we went out to a series of angel investors in 2020 uh, with the idea that they could unlock other introductions and connections to us. And that's why we raised at that point. But honestly, most of the time we've been growing organically and not needing outside capital, which is a really good place to be. Um, But fundamentally, we do want to solve the problem at scale, right? You know, we've reached over 400 customers as of today. 
But there are thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of small businesses. And so to scale up as a service provider to be able to reach that many customers is going to take time and energy. I want to kind of go deeper a bit on the raising money for services company. Sure. Maybe something you can speak and help other people when they create services, whatever the services they are. I think traditionally is not so easy to raise money because you're a service company. Like, hey, what's unique about you? So if you can share a story, how did you create the pitch? What do you think was different to explain to people why they need to put money in you? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know how helpful my story would be for other people in the space, just because I definitely recognize I'm coming from a place of privilege. I mentioned at the very start, I was introduced to two investors who wanted a founder to help start a business. That's the reverse of a typical story, right? And one of those investors, like both of them are, one's a serial entrepreneur, another one runs a very well-known venture capital company in Vancouver called Version One. They have incredible networks and connections. And so when it came time to seek out other investors, literally we had two pitch calls with a dozen investors each, 90% of them wrote checks. It was a really straightforward process and not at all. So basically you're coming to, it's who do you know is very important. Who do you connect? It definitely made a huge difference for us in this case. And frankly, has made a huge difference throughout the entirety of our business. Strategic partnerships have benefited from relationships and connections. My 20 years of cybersecurity industry experience has helped me with you know hiring and acquiring initial customers and all this kind of stuff. And some, often people who are older are very successful in starting businesses. And I think that older comes with those connections and relationships and experiences as well. We call it older anymore. We call it more mature. <laughs> I think I count for both. So let's go and talk about hiring. Because yep. hiring, it's very interesting. And I think hiring in a service company, it's even more harder in many cases is that hiring for a vendor. Because the churn rate is quite fast. People think they know everything after six months and want to move somewhere else. So yep. let's start from the beginning about what's your approach of hiring? Do you have a culture you guys created? Did you build something in a company that basically say, I want this type of people. It's funny because I was talking to someone in a previous podcast and he answered, I want great people. I was like, what does great people mean? Well, it means I can different be things for different organizations. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the things that we really benefit from is a very strong culture at Cobalt. And ultimately, your team is the culture that team serves your customers, which retains them and grows them. And so, that core culture is really, really critical, and we've had successes and failures along the way in terms of bringing the right people on board. Definitely, generally, the cybersecurity industry is fairly competitive for talent, and so we've seen people where literally you hire somebody out of school, they've just graduated for, I don't know, call it 60K, six months later, they're coming back for you for you know, 90 or 100, and you know, see turnover and churn and all this kind of stuff, and we've experienced some of that along the way. The interesting thing about our business is because we're serving SMBs, you know, Often our best hires are not the people who come from a cybersecurity background. And that's counterintuitive. The challenge with people who are like myself, 10, 15, 20 year industry veterans with cybersecurity backgrounds is almost all of us have done our work in enterprise, right? And so when you're trying to solve security in enterprise, the way you solve it in SMB is completely different. You need to design your services and your approach from the ground up for SMB in order for it to really work and scale and be repeatable and be cost effective and all these sorts of different things. And when you come at it from an enterprise, enterprise mindset that we've had to rewire some of our more senior and experienced hires because they've had to shift their thinking in order to be able to serve the clients that we work with so often. 
And, you know, so that's created some interesting challenges, but we've got a great team. You know, one of the things that we've prioritized is diversity of a team. And so we've got people, you know, different backgrounds, genders, and lots of immigrants to Canada. We've got an international team as well. We've got a team in India. We've got a first hire in Australia. Definitely have benefited from just relationships and network and all that kind of stuff. But I think as a founder, it's the most important thing you do is figure out who are the people you want to have on the boat with you and get them all rowing in the same direction. You mentioned culture. Is culture something you decide in advance or it's culture something that's created in the company, independently people? Yeah, I think it's a combination of the two. So we have a core set of values that we anchored around relatively early on in our journey. Now, getting those values built into the culture and getting them be a part of the fabric of everything that we do every day has taken a lot of continuous work. And our values are really aligned around our mission and what we're trying to achieve and how we want to go about doing those things. And so like literally we do things like we have a Monday standup where the team gets together and because we're all a diverse team and we're all remote, so it's an opportunity to just have some shared contact time. We rotate through every member of the team doing a TED talk every week so that everybody gets a chance to like speak in front of the group and share something they're passionate about and all this kind of stuff. So those things help build culture in a remote environment. But Understanding our values around like velocity and positive recognition and all these sorts of things are key to the success that we're trying to build in serving small businesses. And it really takes a lot of reinforcement of those values to build the culture that allows the organization to be successful. When you joined the company, there was some idea what you're trying to build. Now, managed services can take many different flavors. Yeah. And you can do many different things. You can do it in-house, you can quietly summon I'm wondering, there was some idea, and this idea stick, or this idea shaped and changed when you guys started the journey and realized not exactly what we envisioned when we were thinking of a building. I mentioned two co-founders, investors, wanted to get into the cybersecurity business. They literally had a blank sheet of paper. All they knew is they wanted to do something in cybersecurity services, and they wanted it to have a monthly recurring revenue component. That was kind of their entire thing, right? So like that opens up a universe of opportunity. And so for me, the immediate kind of obvious opportunity was security monitoring, managed threat detection as a service, because it's one of those things that as you build, it scales naturally as you add customers, right? So the more customers you add, the more cost effective it becomes, the more benefit because you have more data that gets to serve those customers, your use cases scale across customers. There's all sorts of return on scale that really start to happen in the kind of data security monitoring data analytics place compared to say managed firewalls or endpoint security where all the change management doesn't really drive a lot of long-term margin and so we started with SOC as a service we you know like classically we thought we were going to build our own tech stack that was a complete failure like we failed out of that within six or seven months and then went to commercial off-the-shelf software but the thing that really i didn't understand early enough in the market was when you're selling to smb they're looking for a complete solution. And so it's very hard to sell, say, just SOC as a service or just pen tests or just any one little piece of a service pie. You actually need to be able to provide an entire solution to your customers. Um, and that's because you know they don't have uh, sophisticated security experts and buyers. They don't have a team. They want to build a trusted relationship with one provider and get that provider to do as much as possible. And so by the end of the first year, we had really pivoted from being purely a SOC as a service type of play to um, starting to build what we call security program as a service, which is we're pairing VCSO, SOC as a service, education, other components, and compliance has become really central to this to build and execute a security program over the long term for our clients. 
And so that's nice. It's it's big, it's deep, it's sticky. You can charge a customer more than you can charge them for a point solution. And once you build a trusted relationship with a customer, they're going to come back to you for more and more things. And so lots of pivots in the first couple of years as we kind of figured that out. But at this point, we've definitely got a model that scales quite well. Now, I'm going to pivot somewhere else and let me know if it's a good direction or not. I want to talk about sales. Did you hire salespeople or you started selling by yourself, basically like founder lead sales, the same as the vendor is doing? So I hired a salesperson pretty much right when we started. And that salesperson and myself did sales for the first year. And I think looking back retroactively, that was a bit of a mistake. I probably should have done more founder-led sales and less dependence on the salesperson in that first year. Because we were still figuring out like what is the service offering and product market fit and stuff like that. When we started getting traction, I then went and was getting a lot of demands from growth from my investors and so started building up the sales team. And that was kind of called year two, year three of our existence. And that was an interesting time. It helped us scale our acquisition to customers, but that sales team, in fact, wasn't performant because we were still actually still working on product market fit, service market fit, right? The further I've gotten away from sales over my journey, the more likely we are to get distracted and go the wrong direction. The closer I am to sales, the more effective we are in growing our business and, and really serving the needs of our clients. And so today, five years in, we're going to be five years tomorrow. I am still very tightly coupled to sales. We downsized our sales team and we're just starting to rebuild it again, but with a much more founder-centric motion in mind. And I think, obviously, like I have 25 years of cybersecurity experience. I have a lot of opinion around customers and what they need and how to sell and all this kind of stuff. And there's a lot of work to be done before you can transition out of founder sales effectively around in the same way that you're talking to vendors. So it's like the productization of your service and making it packaged, making it easy for you to hire a salesperson off the street and have them represent it. Because we're not trying to be a boutique. We're not trying to serve five or 50 customers. We're trying to serve hundreds and thousands of customers. We need to have standardized, repeatable sales and motions that work. And if you don't put the time into building that effectively, then the whole thing just falls apart as people get too custom and stuff like that. Is your background is more sales or more technology? So I started as a technologist, right? So I was a sysadmin and network engineer and then sales engineer and then running teams from that point. So I have, I'm a geek by nature, right? I understand the bits and the bytes, but I have effectively like 15 years of sales adjacent experience right and so so you basically yeah. wore two hats you know understand this part and the reason i ask is and bring this part because i starting to see that in the industry because it's so complex mm-hmm. the sales people in some cases transition more to become like almost like procurement gurus they understand mm-hmm. how to make the deal but the selling is actually done by the sales engineer because it becomes so complex and so nuanced and so kind of small parts that you need to take care of. Yeah. And I spent a big chunk of my career as a sales engineer. And so that's a very natural thing for me. And it's also like one of the advantages of selling to SMBs is procurement in SMBs is not like procurement in enterprise, right? Like procurement in SMBs, like here's a proposal. Do you like it? Do you have any questions? Sign. It's not like I got to take you through a 12-step governance process and we got to like probably less than 10% of my customers ever even look at the T's and C's. Like the process is much, much simpler. I love working with small, mid-sized tech startups all day. They're easy to sell to. They're easy to support. They're driven by velocity and wanting to get things done. You know, they're there to make a dent in the world. They're a great set of customers to, to get to work with, right? And that's a, having worked with enterprise a lot in the past, it is a very different motion, you're right. So what could be your advice for founders 
doesn't matter if you're a service company or vendor's company, of let go of selling the baby and give it somebody else to trust to sell the baby. Yeah, I think the thing that every founder needs to be keeping in mind at all times is what is the highest opportunity cost or opportunity value thing that they can be doing with their time at any given point in time. We scaled to a certain size. And in the early days, I was a chief dishwasher, bottle washer, delivery sales, marketing, everything. And as we grew, I continued to hire people to solve specific problems for me. Not so much solve the problem, but to take a solved problem and execute that well. So hire project managers when we got to a certain amount of delivery volume, hire delivery people you know, to actually do the delivery work once we got to the next level of volume right? And hire salespeople to do the more transactional, repeatable sales so that I can figure out how to standardize and make the rest of the sales motion transactional and repeatable, right? And so I think every founder should be thinking about like, how do I take the thing that I am doing today and package it so that I can hand it off to somebody else so I can do the next even higher value activity. And if you understand what you're doing and how you're spending your time, those choices are going to become obvious. And like, obviously at one point in time, that's going to be sales, right? Like it's going to be, here's a thing where I can, in my case, hand off 80 or 90% of the sales motion to a salesperson and just come in when needed on specific strategic opportunities and stuff like that. That lets me have a higher impact to the business overall. And so that's, I think every founder needs to be continuously figuring out how do they ratchet up their impact because that's what allows a business to grow and scale. Makes sense. Makes sense. With the company, there's a lot of small tasks. And a lot of prioritization needed. Tell me yeah. about how you prioritize stuff. How do you tell people to do tasks to make sure it's not there's like organized chaos, I like to call it. So I'm a big fan of a guy named Daniel Pink. He wrote a book called Drive. And so yes. my management style is very much you know, aligned with mastery, autonomy, and purpose, right? So make sure the team knows the mission, right? Give them the autonomy to go out and do things their own way, even recognizing that you wouldn't necessarily do it the same way and support them in their success. And so when I delegate something off to a member of my team, I have to give up and I have to trust the team. You know, if they're engaged, if I've hired the right people, if they're aligned to the mission, are going to make the right choices every day on those individual tasks. And so, you know, really the answer to that is do less stuff yourself. Build a team that is capable of doing those things. Make sure that team has a strong alignment of purpose and mission and they have the tools necessary to succeed and get the hell out of their way or give them the support they need, right? And then the rest is just like, as founders, you always want to do more. And so you t- tend to take on a lot of individual tasks which that need to be executed against. By the way, people that are listening and watching right now, if you didn't read, drive, highly recommend it. Doesn't matter what you do. Like you mentioned, washing dishes, flying to the moon. I think it's an amazing book for everyone. Very, very yeah. lot of stuff. So how do you build drive in a service company for 24-7 when somebody comes in as SOC and tier one analyst and understand that, hey, I have the things I need to do and that's it. Yeah, I think, honestly, again, back to master autonomy and purpose, I've hired a fantastic SOC manager and he knows how to engage and motivate his tier one and tier two teams to make that work, right? And so, honestly... I don't have to be involved in the day-to-day operations. He takes care of it. He's figured out how to build the right standard operating procedures, how to make sure the tier one team knows what they're doing and executing it well, when to escalate to tier two, all that kind of stuff. And although I have some experience in that, my experience only takes me so far. It's, again, that comes around to hire the right people, make sure they're aligned on mission, You know, make sure that they understand what the values of the business are, what they can be doing in their roles to drive those values forward. 
um, and get the hell out of their way. And I, I've done that with my sock manager. I've done that with my CEO, my director of delivery. They're doing great work, right? And so it's about supporting them, asking the right probing questions when we need to, making sure we're all aligned on what we're trying to achieve, and, and all of us pulling our own part in the overall equation. If you can go back and change something five, six years ago at the company, mm-hmm. what would you do? I think the key thing would probably to just make sure I'm I'm that much closer to sales through that entire period, especially like years one to three um, that I was. And I've never been away from sales, but like there there have been points when I've tried to back off more from it and understand that things need to be at a certain level of maturity before I can do that. So I shouldn't be trying to rush to revenue when I still need to solve some of the fundamental building blocks on repeatability and scalability and saleability of our services. That would probably be the key thing. Honestly, I don't know that I would make any significant changes because the journey is part of the reward, right? Like it's, you're going to have ups and downs. You're going to have bumps and bruises. Like nobody can predict COVID or the massive interest rate spikes that we've seen over the last couple of years, all these sorts of things. And so you have to be adaptable to the times. And I'm sure if we had made different choices back then, you know, we would have had different outcomes, but then we would have had to adapt in a different way. This is actually almost like a building block to my next question. If you spending 10 hours a day selling, you may have bad days. You may have just burning out. How do you recap? How do you get back to yourself? What do you do? Walk on the beach, meditate, spend time with the family. I think a combination of family and nature in my particular case are, are my two kind of return to baselines, right? So I took my first lengthy vacation this summer, like three weeks continuous since founding the company. I took sailing classes and went to the beach. And I'm five minutes from the woods because I live on Vancouver Island. And so nature is very accessible to me. I have three children, my youngest of which is uh, non-speaking autistic, which really is a great gift because it forces me to be in the moment when I'm with her. So I can't really be distracted by the things, which is really uh, rewarding. And so I think family and nature for me are two things that are my groundstone and enable me to rejuvenate and bring energy. And although I'm good at sales and sales is really important for building the business, I'm also not in love with the sales, like a traditional salesperson, right? And so I do need to recharge and deal with sales burnout and stuff like that, like anybody else, right? It's a good time to transition to something I call dark side, where mm-hmm. we talk more about the failures and what didn't work and what you learn from there. So of course, only public information, whatever you can share? Yeah, I would say we've had a bunch of dark periods along the way. I hinted at some of the things earlier. So for example, I hired a CTO right out the gate because we were going to build technology and that didn't work. We had to make a decision and let that person go six or seven months into the business. So that was a challenging choice and a difficult pivot, especially since he had worked really hard to try to get us to something that just wasn't going to play out at that point. Similarly, we went through the thing where we built out a sales team based on trying to achieve certain results that didn't work out. And we had to go through a bit of a refactor. 18, 24 months ago, we were burning cash, even though we were growing really quickly. And that was a hard place to be. And we had to do a lot of refactoring to get to where we are today, where we've doubled and doubled in size again, and we're solidly profitable. And we have a much more obvious path to successful growth at this point than we did 24 months ago. And so I think the reality is every founder is going to have dark days. I'd say my darkest days were probably like seven months of the business where I'm like, I don't know if this is going to be a thing. Like we really had no proof at that point. We'd burned a bunch of cash. We weren't seeing traction. At the end of the first year, I could see that there was a path. You're always like, does this path get me to where I need to be at the pace that I need to be there? Am I going to run out of money? Like all these sorts of different things are going to come up. 
And so you need to have a real strong internal grit and drive and motivation of purpose in order to get there. I don't think, I think every founder has good days and dark days, and that's just the nature of the role. The challenges change as you scale too, as well, right? So. I'm going to ask you a last question. Maybe if you can summarize in literally 20, 30 seconds. Was there like a wow effect from when a customer or like you knew you were on the right path? I've had a bunch of those. I had a great just recent testimonial from a customer. We were asking them about their experiences with us. And his comment was, I used to be seen by the business as the no guy, right? Like the security department. And now I'm seen as a critical asset and we're really helping to drive the growth. And it was my work with Cobalt that helped that happen, right? And so I love success stories and case studies like that. You have lots of customers who are like, you helped me get my SOC 2 compliance and that unlocked a bunch of business and I've gone from 20 employees to 40 employees to 60 employees all because of that pivot point in my business. And we focus on security as a driver to the business and how to drive those outcomes. And so we're really fortunate that we get a lot more of those success stories than say somebody who's just, I don't know, focused on stopping malware every day. Michael, thank you very much. A very good episode. I learned a lot. Hope people listening to us also learned a lot and they will basically check what you guys do and maybe understand more. Thank you. Thanks for your time. You got everything. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening and please join the next episode. Thank you everyone.